Mendeleev, and this is the Mendeleev podcast. I love how I've been saying podcast rather than podcast. Really trying to make it a thing these days, guys. You know, gotta flip the script eventually, dude. Change the form, mess around, find out. So today we have the legendary Tarek Akoni on. In this talk, I know I always say it, but oh, you guys. It's a special one. Tarek is a highly accomplished guitar player playing with the likes of Christina Aguilera, Josh Groban, you know, an amazing studio musician and touring guitarist, and also wears so many different hats as a producer. He's been the director of A&R at Santa Barbara Records. We both went to Berklee College of Music, but two decades apart in the guitar department. As generic as this sounds, we really talk about what it means to be an artist. We talk about what he refers to as the middle-class musician and how there are these extremes of complete unknown to being a successful musician and how oftentimes these gray in-between areas of the spectrum are often ignored um, or, or not really understood. We talk about legendary songwriters and the different techniques and processes each one have used from Joni Mitchell to Bob Dylan to Leonard Cohen, you know, the greats. And we explore all of these key insights and he just drops beautiful knowledge bombs that if you got a notepad, you better start writing down because this dude has a well of knowledge and years of experience. So such a pleasure to talk to him. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Mendeley of Podcast featuring Tarek Akoni. Did, did, Brad, did, it's Podcast. There's a difference when you're in different markets, you know, kind of what's expected of you. And yeah. in LA, there's a certain expectation in terms of professionalism and all these things that, like, at least get you on the list, you know, because, because, mm. like, part of it means, like, like he's looking for someone that can literally, who's going to replace his normal bass player for, like, one of his big showcases. So we need someone who is going to learn the music, come in, probably, I don't even know if they're going to have a rehearsal, you know, yeah. um, so he's probably have to read the charts, be pro. Yeah. And, and somebody said, and I thought this was great, they said, look, when you recommend someone, there are two reputations on the line. There's his and there's yours, you know, where it's like, if he shows up and tanks it, that reflects poorly on me. So my list of people that I'm willing to call is really short because it reflects on me. And the way you kind of work your way into that list is through kind of repetitive good behavior. Like that thing of, of, you know, you build a narrative. So people have an expectation that if you show up, you're going to be able to like handle that with care, that, that, that assignment, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Gotcha. That That's yeah. fascinating, man. Well, and, I, and, uh, I, I'd yeah, like to interrupt, but I was just going to say, just as an example, I had that happen to me when I had to do, I had to work with Christina Aguilera the first time. And Oh, um, I didn't know you were, you, you played oh, with yeah. her? And it was, um, and they literally called me in to do a tour date and to do the MTV Movie Awards, and there was no rehearsal. It was literally fly oh, in and climb up on stage, sound check with the band and do the show in front of however many thousands of people. And wow. the only way you, you, get that opportunity is if people believe that they don't have to stop a hundreds of thousands of dollar or multi-million dollar tour in order for for you that you're going to show up have your job taken care of know what's expected of you yeah. you know all this stuff like those things that we get used to out of uh, in smaller musical communities where it's like it's okay if somebody you know if you break a string or your amp's not working or those things <laughs> You can't, yeah. that's not an option, you know, when you get there. So it's like, you got to make sure all this is buttoned up, you know? Right, right, exactly. And so you have all these different hats that you kind of wear throughout the industry, but but would you say the guitar has has been where most of your success has come from um, and, and still still to this day? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, sorry, I'm leaning in because so, I was drinking coffee. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly known as a guitar player and as a... Mm-hmm. You know, however you want to call it, you know, um, 
session player, sideman, whatever you want to call it, is, is, is how I've mostly kind of, the kind of has been the yeoman work of my career. The more kind of white collar stuff has been, you know, um, as a, a chairman of a guitar department or director mm. of A&R or, um, yeah. you know, those kinds of things, you know, things where, gotcha. uh, or musical director and, and orchestrating conductor, you know, and I still do a fair amount of that stuff, but yeah, like the sideman part of my life for a while was kind of maybe, maybe 30, 40% of my work, you know, and then for a little while, you know, and, and now it's probably mm -hmm. back up to 60, you know, but it's all kind of yeah. where you want to put energy, but, but with the sideman thing, yeah. it also sometimes means having to go on the road. And I have for years been trying to kind of curtail that part of my life. As much oh, as possible. really? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Gotcha. You know, and I mean, so, and so are you mainly just taking kind of local ish gigs now, like within a general hundred mile radius or so? Yeah. And I'll travel if it's, if it's, I don't mind traveling down to LA and I don't mind yeah. doing stuff like that, but it was that, you know, I spent one year where I think I was on the road. I think we added it up. It was, it was like, it, it, I mean, it, the tour was probably 11 months total, you know, but I was gone, Holy shit! you know, I mean, it was, there would be like weeks on weeks off, but it's that kind of thing where when you hit yeah. a certain age or have certain responsibilities or family things and things that are re of real important yeah. that you can't invest in for me personally, yeah, it was something I felt like I needed to kind of pull back. So the only artist I really tour with properly these days is Josh, Josh Groven. Josh Groban, um, right. Yep. Okay, and I still would do like, I would do like spot dates with, you know, David Foster or a quick run with Foster or. Yeah, I Wait, with really? Midler. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know? Oh, oh, yeah. I work with David no, a fair amount. Wow. And, yeah. And you know, it's like, there's a couple of, I think I work with Bette Midler for, for about a year and, oh, wow. and those things are fun to kind of take on in a limited capacity. But okay. as much as I can monetize being at home, that's yes. really, that's really where my passion is. You know? Yes, yes. Yeah. I think I think a lot of us learned that lesson at least through COVID. Um, 100%. And there is a way. I mean, there, it yeah. seems like we're co-inventing these avenues, but it, it, yeah. it seems like there really is a way, especially as a musician, to make it work. Sending stems. Um, yeah. But but there isn't quite a substitute for being on the road or being a touring musician. Um, and so yeah. and so, like yeah, as you said, you kind of stick with the 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 guitar and travel for these these maybe some LA shows or runs is that what you're doing now is it with Josh or what's the current um the current run that you're on now right? oh with Josh yeah. so Josh is doing Broadway this year so we're not really doing any that's right oh I yeah, did just uh, Sweeney doing, Todd right doing Sweeney Todd yeah yeah and, I saw um, it. yeah yeah are you you're not in New York right now right you're in LA I still am I'm I'm in New York oh man okay well we're gonna have yep. to get you to go down and see the show um yeah that'll be a blast yeah but um you know so right now, a lot of what I'm doing, like I just got back, I just did a show down in Anaheim. Um, I just did, oh gosh, I have to, I'm going to rack my brain. Did a couple of sessions. <laughs> I was at East West for a couple of things. Um, just did a Wait, I'm sorry, you said you're Vegas. at East West? East West Studios? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. I just did a thing in Vegas. It was a, uh, a, a big show where we were backing up like Sammy Hagar and Alice Cooper and, oh, nice. um, and some of those guys. And then before that, I just did the music cares benefit and it was a tribute to oh it was a tribute to Smokey Robinson and um Perry Gordy and we wound up doing the Grammys with Stevie Wonder. So oh, if you wow. saw the Grammys and that Stevie Wonder performance with Chris Stapleton, I was back there. I was, you know, in the dark with no my bald head way. and all that oh stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I didn't realize then so great. Oh yeah. But it's it's that thing where I still love I love doing that and I love playing guitar. Um mm -hmm. and where I think the the weird inflection point is 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 I joke and say, I play guitar for free. You pay me to leave my house, you know? Um, <laughs> but as a side man, it's not always, you're not, as a side man, it's not about your art. It's about supporting someone in their yeah. art. And yeah. that doesn't mean you can't be creative or bring your art to bear, Sure, but it's not completely a full expression of your art. So you find yeah. yourself using certain things that are kind of commercial or commerce-based. You do mm -hmm. other things that you feel are more artistic, and then you have your own, kind of artistic expression through that. So yeah, what I was compromise. literally just working on was um, I'm involved in, in, a, in, a, in a project that we're, we're jokingly calling uh, Americana Chamber Music. And the idea is taking kind of these roots of American music, however we define it, and, you know, filtering it or refracting it through the prism of 
kind of traditional Americana instruments, like whether the lap steel or kind of tremolo guitars or that kind of stuff. So we're literally pulling apart everything from Satie to Willie Nelson and from oh, like man. Charles Mingus to the, the, the ventures, you know what I mean? It's, there's a whole, and, like, and by doing it, you start to see this, this thread when you look at kind of Satie's influence on, let's say John Adams or John Adams and, you know, um, Copeland and then Bernstein and, and, you know, and even Lalo Schifrin and Quincy Jones. And you start to see mm. this, this through line through that stuff, especially yeah. when it's refracted through the prism of kind of artistic perception. Like when we did the yeah. Kelly Americana record, mm -hmm. you know, part of the idea was, was with the cover song is the idea of what does it sound like when Mendeleev gets his hands on this? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that, like Joni Mitchell refracted through the prism of your art, that kind of thing. Right. It's like it, it's, it shines a light in two different ways, you know? So, right. I did, the, I, I did the cover of California. Um, yes. Uh, Joni mm -hmm. Mitchell's California. That's right. Yeah. On the, on the Santa Barbara records, Cali Americana, uh, uh, collection of songs with different artists. Yeah. And it's cool because once again, it's like hearing you stretch out on that, you know, mm -hmm. it's like not only seeing your perception of it, but also when you touch it and when it gets filtered through you, it, it, you have ownership of it. It becomes an artistic expression of you, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and oftentimes with covers, it's like, I mean, at a certain point for myself, I, I, there's a physical impossibility of me being able to yeah. replicate somebody else well right. and, and and that's my own limitation but that's kind of helped me develop my own personal style with it yeah and um and you know just kind of ha I have my lane uh and my way of doing yeah. things and uh, it runs <laughs> through my filter um yeah and so if it's like Joni Mitchell all of a sudden becomes Johnny Cash so be right. it and what does that sound like <laughs> well and I mean and once again when you think about Joni's you know, like I, I can, I can get a little heady with his stuff and I try not to lead with, let's do with, it. Well, but I try not to lead with that kind of left brain thing, but it's like, sure. You can look at Joni and you can see the influence of the prairie. And so whether it's for her being in Canada and then you see like the Leonard Cohen, you know, um, yeah. Neil Young kind of, these yes. guys come from the same area or you look at Bob Dylan coming from the prairie in the U S coming from Minnesota. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, so it's yeah. like, you know, Bob Dylan, and then when you talk about Johnny Cash and you talk about not only his influences, but the influence he had on contemporary music, even in phrasing and pacing and, and having kind of that voice that he had, for me, it becomes fascinating when you actually take off the blinders, you know, and start to look at it all as, as a continuum, a musical continuum, you know? Yeah. Because yeah, it's, it's weird when you start to like go through... I'm doing this like record bins, although the audience can't see me. And I'm not sure the last time people went through a record bin. But when you're, <laughs> when you're sifting through and things are categorized as reggae or dance hall or blues or country or whatever, I think that you start to lose the fact that, you know, there was sometimes a political thing that actually was a lightning, like lightning rod for a bunch of different artists. Or sometimes uh -huh. it's a musical movement, like a lot of like... Um, Reggae was influenced. I want to say was it, it wasn't doo wop, but there was like a lot of those kinds of things that like start to percolate and, and show they, influence. They, yeah, they did infuse. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, That's you did. So interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. and and yeah. So I I was I was actually just thinking about this. I mean, yeah, as an artist, it really does get tricky when it when it comes to genres and and finding where what category we do place ourselves. And for mm -hmm. me, a lot of the times, it's like I I don't actually I stopped considering that my responsibility at a certain right. point. Right. Yeah, and it's 100%. like maybe if some somebody else came along and was like, "Hey, this is where you fit." It's like, okay, great, market yeah. me there. But but I'm I'm not necessarily going to be the one to make that creative decision. Um, and and I kind of treat that as the same as like as in my own consumer mind. And I don't know if you relate to this, but if I if I'm going to go listen to something, I don't necessarily just go to that genre and say i'm i think i'm gonna listen to reggae now it, yes. it, it's it's and and it's the same with film too like i do know people who do this but i don't necessarily like 
scroll through streaming services being like, I want to watch a thriller or a yeah, comedy. It's right, like, right, you know, right, we, right. we like someone or we like their body of work, whether it's an actor, director or, or a writer. Um, mm -hmm. And we follow them and we're interested in, you know, maybe got good reviews or, or all these like different reasons. But genre is usually the last on my list of my, the choices that I make. I totally agree. And I, and I think that where it gets interesting, and this is when I put on my A&R hat, is I think mm -hmm. when it gets, where it gets interesting, um, I was just down at the Americana Musical uh, Awards or musical, uh, the Americana Music Fest down in Nashville. Oh. And one of the things, it was end of last year, and one of the hot topics was this, uh, this idea of diversity and inclusion and this idea of how do we, you know, institute some kind of substantive change as pertains to inclusion, diversity, and all of that kind of stuff within the genre, because the, the larger powers that be kind of recognize they're like, you know what, I'm not sure if this is genuine representation. Yeah. And they actually did a lot of studies, which were amazing. And I met some incredible people, but what I was mm -hmm. fascinated by is it starts to beg the question of who has their hands on the wheel, right? So for instance, you know, everyone is looking for a way to monetize your art, like you being the artist, people are trying to find ways to monetize your art. And in doing yeah. so, what they do is they come up with, it's almost like when you're teaching and you have to come up with um, curriculum where you're like, mm -hmm. I have to get people to this point at the yep. end of six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks or, whatever, or 10 weeks or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm going to organize it in this way. And I'm going to leave these things off in order to get there. Similarly, kind of when you're commercializing art, a lot of people want to put you in a bucket because they know how they can then um, market you, monetize you. And they, there will be certain things where they'll go, you know what? I feel like that's more folk than it is Americana. So yeah. I am not going to be able to take it to my Americana radio people, which mm -hmm. means that if radio is not going to play it, people aren't going to find out about it. People don't mm -hmm. find out about it. They're not going to buy it. You know, so yeah. the question is who's got their hands on the wheel and who are the arbiters of that kind of stuff? Right. Because like you said, it's not necessarily the artist's job to go, okay, I'm going to be punk rock. So that mm -hmm. means I'm going to be these things. Mm -hmm. You know, theoretically, the artist's job is to create art, which exists yeah. in a vacuum. And, and then, then in retrospect, if, maybe there's a type of analysis that... Yes. And put, you might yeah. have people on your team. You might have like your manager, your A&R rep, people that, are, that represent you going, hey, listen, you've gone a little far this direction. It's going to be harder to necessarily put that in a bucket. But if you're telling me that that's what you, your art, then we have to accept that. And yeah. as, as I've said, I did a thing recently where I was talking about the idea of the value proposition. So one of the things I would talk about is, you know, everyone's allowed to create whatever art they want to create. When you talk about monetization, now you start to talk about boxes you have to tick. So for instance, we've all gone to a club where it's been a really bad band and the place is packed with people. And then you've got <laughs> to other clubs with the most incredible art and there's like three people in the corner. Right. And from the monetization standpoint, the club is more incentivized to hire the bad band, you know? So it's that, mm. that place between those of like, how do you monetize great art and give it to the people that want to hear it in order to kind of pack those places, you know, and build up an ecosystem to support yes. art. You know what I mean? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Sorry. I didn't and mean to go so, all the way down the rabbit hole. I no, I, that, that's why I started the podcast. It, it's, oh, right. it's for the rabbit hole. No, right um, on. <laughs> yeah, Just and, ask and, Alice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. And I, you know, there's no, I, I there's no limitations. I, I, don't, I genuinely don't intentionally go into any of these with, with a direction to steer in. Uh, the, yeah. the general concept is the creative process. And so mm. I did want to ask you, um, aside from being, having your guitar hat on and aside from having your A&R hat on, yeah. uh, is, 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 where, where do you stand as a, a personal writer or artist of re recording your, uh, your own original music? Yeah. Well, so I think that's a, I mean, thank you for asking. That's a, that's a great question. And I think that, um, I have, uh, uh I, I joke that, that, uh, commerce is art pressurized by time, you know? And so <laughs> I, you know, I remember you saying that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. That's and great. Because, that's great. Because there's the part of it where we're all waiting for lightning to strike and we're all waiting for that creative impulse. So yeah. in my mind, I like to bifurcate the process and go, there is the strictly right brain creative process of like opening your mind and letting, you know, letting information come in and just being a conduit of stuff. And then the second process is more left brain, which is the 
editing down or discovering what's a great idea or the craft of writing, you know? Yeah. So that thing of, like they say that, that, um, Beethoven, the, um, uh, do, 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 da, 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 da. They said that mm -hmm. that was actually yes. a bird call in, uh, in his native land. Right. <laughs> so, so everybody heard it, but he heard it and heard an entire symphony. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's like, yeah, so yeah, 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 all yeah, of that yeah, yeah. influence is there if you open yourself up to it. And right. the craft is, what do I want the woodwinds to play? How do I voice for woodwinds? That's the craft mm -hmm. of it. You know, and, but the art is like discovering it, you know, being able to, and so one of the things I try to do when I'm in a good space um, is in the morning, I have my, my iPhone. And the first thing I do is I try to come up with four ideas, you know, and then I get into the mechanics of the day. And then I come back and go, of those four ideas, which one am I willing, which one should I chase? Like, yeah. which one is worthy of kind of being chased down? And the idea behind that is exercising the creative muscle of just catching lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And then also exercising the craft element of like, how do I develop that idea? And the, uh, and the third ancillary benefit of it is if you ever have writer's block, you have three ideas a day that you didn't chase that you can go back and go, is there something there that I want to kind of, you know, mm. get after, mm -hmm. you know, but Love I think that. that that's the other part of it of, you know, you almost want to keep yourself primed for, for, um, inspiration, you know, because we're so distracted throughout the day that we don't, we're not like gassed up and ready to go and create something every moment. And they, there's, there's an old analogy. you got to be fast to catch lightning in a bottle. Yes. And that's my thing is you almost have to train that energy of like every day, just waking up and be like, you know what, let me just, let me grab my guitar. Let me be in a flow state creatively yeah. and just put something down, not judge it, not say it's good or bad, just get it out. Mm -hmm. And then I'll come back mm -hmm. later and go, there's a seed of an idea there. Let me see if I can develop that into something else. That's, that for right. me is, has been kind of my process. And yeah. the commerce part of that to me is, is in collaborative processes, you know, it has served me well to kind of be on that edge of something. Like if you throw out an idea to go, oh, what if we did this? And always, yeah. like one analogy I made, um, I was working at a songwriting camp and I said, don't let the balloon hit the ground. Like when you're nice. in a co-write. Nice, you know I, I mean? love like, it. Yeah. yeah, it's like always oh, that's either- that's the most just, important thing. Yeah, rule keep it one. up, keep the energy. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah know? Especially improv, the rule, you know, always uh, never say no. Just exactly. training the yes, yes muscle as they call it. Yes and, yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. Oh man, because yeah, there's nothing sadder about you know letting the balloon hit yeah, the floor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I think feeling. also everybody in the room. I mean, especially if it's a new collaboration, everybody's self-conscious. Everybody yeah. is walking in, going, "Is this going to be the day I don't have any ideas?" Or you know, yeah. and so and so when I talk about the commerce part of it, what I'm talking about is the way you set yourself up for the win. Like when we're talking about LA musicians. So I was. One of the people that came to the camp was nervous about going into the songwriting camp. And it was his first time doing co-writes. And he's mm. like, I, I don't know the best way to walk into this. And I said, well, mm -hmm. my suggestion would be come in with ideas. And not that everyone has to use your ideas, but just be that guy that has, you know, a couple of grooves, a couple of ideas, a lyric idea, a, a you know, um, maybe even just a, some kind of word salad lyric or, or topic just something to get the ball rolling and then yeah. invite everybody to kind of pitch in. But that thing of, to me, the, the most difficult experience is staring at a blank page metaphorically. Yeah. Is everyone coming in and no one having anything and trying to like just sprung from the head of Zeus, you know, come up with something, you know, you know, creative. But typically yes, a lot yes. of people, if you have, if you walked in and you go, listen, I have three lines of a chorus, you know, that alone can give somebody a whole group of stuff that they can kind of build on and help kind of collaborate in terms of that songwriting process, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love, and I love what you said about, um, you, you know, you're waiting for the lightning to strike. I, I, yes. I, I personally have a strong aversion to that, but I, I do understand how everyone has their own process, but I've, I've just considered it more of my like responsibility to, to show up. Uh, and I, I called it, and it was actually the my thesis or my for my oh. ce as we call it for my master's yeah. program which i call the the pursuit of inspiration uh yeah. and so yeah. i kind of i have this way of 
waking up for it every day and looking and searching. And if something, if, it may be songwriting or whatever it is, isn't inspiring me that day, but I, I go to the next thing. Maybe the guitar isn't inspiring me that day. Yes. And I go to the next instrument. Or maybe music isn't inspiring me that day, and I start film, more filmmaking and editing and cinematography. So I'm, yes. I'm always in this, like, battleground of, like, all right, which one am I going to follow? And and the danger of that, I think, for a lot of people is getting spread too thin, right? And, right. And not, right. not being proficient in one area enough. But for me, I've been fortunate enough to just have this mentality for, I guess, long enough to where I've really developed all of these different crafts to a reasonable proficient level. And yeah. I'm now efficient and I can I can kind of match the speed of my inspiration when it comes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, so right now I'm in this kind of headspace of I don't wait per se. I'm I'm active, but when it does hit, you know, it's like I'm I'm ready for it, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that going back that for me, that analogy of you have to be fast to catch lightning in a bottle. It's like what you're developing are the 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 skills and the the skills, the muscle memory, the the craft of of leaving yourself open as a conduit for creativity. Yeah. Like that, yeah, like yeah. for me, that idea that like like the studio that I'm in right now, everything is on. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like you said. If it's like, oh, I need a baseline. If I have to take 20 minutes to set up my base, you know, I'm gonna, I, I'm out. I'm out of the space. I want to be able to yeah. go, oh, this, and then I can come back later and and yeah. like recut the base. But that thing of being in that flow state and that creative thing, I think yeah. it's important to kind of leave yourself primed and ready to kind of capture it. Like when you were saying, right. it's like, you know, you've got, you know, rugs all around the house. You've got mic set up. You're ready to like mm -hmm. be in that creative space. Yeah, and I think that that someone like you is an incredible, you know, kind of Swiss Army knife of creativity in in collaboration too. Because once again, it's yeah. like you might go to piano, or you might pick up a guitar, or you might layer vocals, or you might. Mm -hmm. There's so much that you can contribute creatively. And what I yeah. saw in the songwriting camp that was great is, in most rooms we had an artist, a top line writer, some kind of more kind of tech producer type, you know. Um, and Would maybe you pair like, them up in, in like intentionally one yeah. on one or, or okay with the different skill sets? Yeah, there was there was so it was almost like kind of like um, kind of like songwriting speed dating where it's like you know people <laughs> would go from different rooms depending on when they had the session set up. I love but it. it was interesting to see not only everyone fall into the roles but also how they would cross over, you know. But that thing of being facile even in your DAW, where mm -hmm. you like if you're trying to like be creative and yeah. you're still trying to read the manual, you know, it's like like you're <laughs> supposed to be a virtuoso with that. You know, because yeah, that's your yeah. medium. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like you said, you don't have to be a virtuoso on guitar. It's almost like, um, I mean, you could one could argue that the more virtuoso you are, the less likely is it is actually going to be commercially viable. You know, yeah, for example, yeah. Said, you know, but, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Or I mean, especially now, but yeah, um, yeah. I think there's there's a level of of ability and skill to where it can allow us to be more diverse, and in that we can our yes and muscles are are much yes. more trained, and we can uh, kind of fill in the the gaps when they appear in collaboration. But yeah, um, well, and I I also think that that to to dovetail off what you're saying, I think what's important to remember in my mind, like like if you're asking me, you know, mm -hmm. is is the emotional resonance and everything being a vehicle for that emotional resonance. Mm -hmm. Like we, we were talking about Johnny Cash earlier or, ta or yeah. Bob Dylan even. And going, Bob Dylan's yeah. not a great singer. You know, Neil Young's <laughs> not a great singer, but he <laughs> can pull your heart in a way that, you know, that thousands of 64th notes at 120 p.m. is not going to move my heart, <laughs> you know? So, so, but you see what I'm saying? Where it's like, like, yeah, that, like yeah. but Paganini is incredibly passionate, but you sit there going, it's in the service of Mm -hmm. this artistic endeavor to create an emotional content. And yes. if you look at that as kind of the primary goal and everything kind of all the rivers leading to that larger ocean, I think yeah. that it starts to put things into place and perspective, you know? Yep. Yes, absolutely. And what, yeah. what's the name of the songwriting camp that you're talking about? Sorry. Oh, okay. So this was, I worked with an organization called Salt Lake Incubator, which is actually founded by Roger Brown. Um, oh, no way. So yes. So it's Roger's new initiative and it's basically a talent incubator um, where they're, it, there's a number of things that they're doing, but they're, they're supplying grants and micro grants for artists. You know, people are applying and in fact, I Great. just got a couple of submissions I have to look at today. Um, nice. I'm the associate musical director for Salt Lake Incubator. Um, oh. but some of the people on the, um, advisory board are like, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm okay. It's okay to say some of these, which is like T-Bone Burnett, Patrice Rush and Harvey Mason Jr. Some of these guys. Oh my God. Um, 
But wow. one of the things that, um, so what we did is we had, uh, I think three days locked out of the studio where we had some of the artists who've kind of come to us. We paired them with up and coming producers and some established producers and writers. And we had kind of the songwriting camp, you know, and then subsequent to that, as they had stuff, they could be writing for their record or just exercising that muscle or even just networking. Um, and it was super successful and I'm sure we're going to be doing another one. Yeah. In fact, I think there's one in New York coming up. You know, I always have this, I'm 52 mm. and, you know, I, I feel like I'm part of an outlier generation that was able to see everything from reel to reel through, you know, digital medium, DAW, you know, wave files, yeah. MP3s, you know, all that kind Holy of stuff. Shit. And so it's, I'm always interested in how people interact when we're in a period in time where we interact through our phones, the computers and all that kind of stuff. So when you get yeah. four people in a room with disparate backgrounds trying to create something, I, it's curious to see. And it, it was so nice to see people, you know, meeting people where they were like people, um, like, I think that's one of the, the possible casualties of, of the current way that we interact is, yeah. is we're so used to seeing the world be, being the protagonist in our own story. You know, but seeing the world from the inside out and like, you know, like once again, you can say some stuff on, on, you know, TikTok or Instagram or whatever without any repercussion. So the idea of like being in a room with somebody and how, how people meet each other there and like collaborate to like create art was a really beautiful and interesting thing. Like, like to watch yeah. these, these for lack of a better term, I mean, younger generation, I don't know if they're technically millennial, but uh -huh. I think they're actually, you know, younger than that. But it was just mm -hmm. really neat to to watch um, people, because even that frame of reference, even like, you know, when you're co-writing and like if someone's whole background is growing up in, you know, the mean street to Detroit and, you know, and I'm from, you know, the coastline of Santa Barbara, you know, finding yeah. a point of reference, you know, like where's yeah. the universality that, that we can kind of, you know, find each other, you know? Yes. Yes. Right. I yeah. love that. And so, yeah. and so, uh, um, you, we both went to Berkeley and we're both in the guitar department, but uh, yeah. I guess a couple, a couple decades apart, yeah. um, and, <laughs> yes. and which is fascinating. And, and I'm, you know, I'm curious about how things have changed through that as well. I, uh, I know that, I mean, I probably had a very different experience than you did, right. but also I, I focused on, on a lot of other things other than guitar when I was there. Was yeah. your, was your major in performance? So I was a professional music major. Oh, nice. And okay. Me yes, too. Yes. Yes. There we go. Um, and I, I didn't go, I, I wasn't enrolled as long as I would have liked. There's a, there's a longer story behind that. Okay. Um, I was only technically enrolled for a semester and then I went back for another semester and, and wound up. I, I oh. joke. I was. I got dropped out. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but but for me, um, it was an incredible experience for the for a number of reasons. Berkeley is an incredible institution, but yeah. it was the immersive part of it. You know, like growing up in Santa Barbara, I, I was into music, but I didn't know that you could make a living playing music. Yeah. You know, and I didn't have a clear sense of how competitive my skill sets were, you know, in the real world, because it was, it's such a small area in Santa Barbara. So for me going to Berkeley and being surrounded by people, as we we're saying, from the mean streets of D Detroit or from Philadelphia and from New York or from mm -hmm. Texas and, and being exposed to kind of this immersive, passionate, you know, music community was so inspiring. And, and really it was, it was, you know, uh, it was a rude awakening for me about where I was and what I discovered was I was lacking in my skill sets, mm. but I had an overabundance of passion for it. You know, like nice. I kind of sat there going, cause I had gone to school before at UC San Diego. I thought I was going to be an attorney. Okay. And, um, wow. and I took a year off to go to Berkeley and to see if I had any aptitude. And so that's when I got uh, bitten by the bug and mm -hmm. realized that I didn't really have an option. I had to pursue music. And wow. when I talk about the commerce part of it, one of the reasons I bring that up, um, and I used to do speaking engagements on this, is is because what we're talking about to greater and lesser degrees is the subsidization of art, is the idea of like, you know, how do you 
how, like, like I, I've been using terms like the middle-class musician or, you know, um, how to create or sustainability as a musician. What does that look like? Because mm. it's like, it doesn't mean there are a lot of people, you'd be amazed at how many people believe. I mean, I would say the mass audience believes that you're either John Mayer or you're struggling in anonymity, you know? Right. And there's a huge area between those two of being. Yeah, especially the, with, with social media and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there's, mm -hmm. but, but part of that means figuring out ways to monetize your art in order to be able to have like, you know, live in a home and, and raise a family and send your kids yeah. to school and show up for, you know, PTA meetings, like to actually lead a healthy, you know, existence, but have your living being creating art or creating music, you know? Yes. Yes. I love yeah. that. Wow. The middle-class musician. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it really, we really do get polarized. I mean, I can't tell you, I've spent my, pretty much my whole career, whatever that's called, uh, uh, yeah. you know, meeting people and, and people telling me and trying to give me career advice, no matter where I'm yes. at with it. Uh, yes. And it's like, and every time it's like, as if we're just starting out on this journey that I've been doing my entire life, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, everyone wants to uh, give this advice. How do you get to this next level and how can you be successful yes. in this? And, and it really is polarizing because it's hard to understand what that middle ground looks like. Are, are we just doing background music, making an okay living in hotels or a bistro right. or something? Um, and are we yeah. just, you know, and it's like, you can do that. Um, it, there's so many different degrees of what it means to be a musician. And and I think for me at Berkeley, that was a big part of what my, my eyes were open to is just like, you know, even when people would be like, oh, you went to music school. It's like, right. as if that means one thing. It's like, oh, you should have seen from the film scoring majors to the music therapy majors to yes. you know, composition yes. performance. It's like, we just get broken up into infinite subcategories and there's so many gray zones and different routes and, and careers uh, within this, you know, larger umbrella. Well, yeah. And, and I think the other part of it that's important to remember is the, the, the idea of, so everything had its trade-offs, but like one of the things that drives me crazy is the fact that what constituted a good paying gig when I was leaving Berkeley, like in, or when I left Boston, I left Boston in 1997, 1996. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what constituted a good paying gig in a club is still the same amount of money today. Oh, you know, like if you, if you do a, a club gig in Santa Barbara or LA and the kids and the club gigs paying two or $300, that's considered like a good paying gig. Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. And, and it was and the same, was, it was the same back was, in the nineties. Yeah. 100%. And, wow. and gas prices were much less. Yeah. And cost of living was much less. Yeah. Rent was much less. Hey, it, so, wow. Shit. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, so part of what you, so there's a couple of different things that go into that. But from the artist's side, I think what's important is this idea of we are our own cottage industry, you know, mm. and even though there are a couple of things like that that can be distracting and, and frustrating. There yeah. are other things that are amazing for our ability to kind of make a living right now. One of which is with, with all of the different, um, medium, or I should say all the different avenues on a medium, like the interweb, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of room for disruptors. There's a lot of room to like create these cottage industries. And part of the trick is, is being able to track and collect all revenue streams. And get a sense of kind of what that looks like. Like yeah. what is, for instance, as an artist, what is your ownership? Or the, one of the analogies I use is, is Facebook, Instagram, TikTok are aggregators. So they're not yeah. necessarily, you do not own those names. You don't yeah. own those people. So even if you have, let's say, 30,000 followers on Instagram, mm -hmm. the idea that you can migrate them to actually buying your your record is, mm -hmm. it might be 10 probably less than 10% are actually going to go out and buy your record, yeah. right? So how do you migrate those people over into a camp where you can directly target those people and get them excited about and purchase your record, yep. right? So, so it's those kinds of things where it's, yep. not, it's not selling out and changing your art. It's creating your art and figuring out what are the avenues to monetize my art. Yeah. Like even as an example, Spotify, you know, if you have a million spins, you're going to make about $4,000, yeah. you know what I mean? Which which, you know, might pay your rent, probably won't, <laughs> you know, yeah. for a million, for a million spent. Yeah. So when you no, look exactly. at Spotify, you can't look at it as the monetization 
system, you have to look at it as a means towards monetization. Like the idea of getting those people excited or even getting the attention of, let's say, a publishing company or something like that, which mm -hmm. then, you know, has an interest in, because they have a vested stake, getting your music and other avenues that then are, are monetized. So it's almost, so mm -hmm. figuring out what that, that universe and architecture looks like as a musician, where once again, the discussion isn't, I guess I better sell out and make, you know, music for the masses. The question yeah. is finding your audience and finding those thousand true fans who, when they're not just going to buy your record, they're also going to buy your t-shirt, show up at a show and all of that kind of stuff and ways of yeah. building that grassroots industry to remain sustainable. And there's a couple yeah. of great books I can actually turn you on to and, and I'd be Kevin, happy to. Kevin um, Kelly? Yes. Um, that's, that's one of them. Um, and I have to, there's one in the other room that it, that's literally by my, um, my couch. I'll, I will email to you or send to you. And, and if you want to add as a link or whatever for people yeah. to check out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there are two or three that I have found and they're small books. They're like, you could probably read them in a week or a couple of days if you're motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're great because they give you real world, not only examples, but they actually give you action steps. Like there's mm. one that's about, it's called sign yourself and it actually mm. gives you a six week release plan nice. as a spreadsheet that you can like literally fill out. in the gaps. Yes. So you have oh, an understanding yeah. of what it means to not just press send on DistroKid, but to actually, you know, we're like, why put out a single? What are singles? How are they going to help you? Is yep. it a better strategy? Like, um, one of the, uh, seminars I went to at Americana Music Fest was, Americana Fest, excuse me, was, um, was why limit yourself to, to three singles to album release? You know, why not use it to c continue to create content in order to keep pushing the record? What does that look like? Yeah. How are people digesting music within your genre? Like, for instance, in Americana, a lot of people still purchase albums, you know, but in pop music, a lot of people might download, like, more people probably know Driver's License than any other song by Olivia Rodrigo, mm, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah. so how do you kind of play to your audience to get, to get them engaged in that process, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Please, please send me some of those links. What was the, was Kevin Kelly's book going to be one of them? I can't remember the name of it. Oh gosh. Uh, I, I think it is, but I can't remember the name either. I, yeah. Fact, I, I probably could Google it's it right he, now. Because he was, he was one of the first to talk about the, the thousand true fans, like you said. Right. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, and and a lot of people reference it. Like they, they, they reference him. Um, one of the books is called Sign Yourself, which is a fantastic book. Yeah. That, uh, which is Benjamin... Yeah. Goff or Groff. And the other one is called, um, I think it's like something like how to succeed and collect all revenues, you know? Oh, cool. Um, and it's, and it's that idea of, of what are these buckets? What are the yeah. buckets for monetization for you? And then how to keep track of it. Yeah. So that had a once again, middle-class musician thing of, yeah. of here's where I am. How do I grow this in all these kind of iterative ways in order to kind of build a sustainable career? And there's just so many different avenues and, and, ways 100%. in which we do reach even just you know fractions of sense but but those do yes. add up if you do track them down um, absolutely yeah and uh you know there's also then there's the the creative side um and i've been asking everybody on this damn podcast if you've uh read rick rubin's book his new book mm. the creative act a way of being i haven't read it but i i would love to read that oh I my find him god fascinating he's yeah. just i me too and i just uh he it's it's removed all books from the top of my shelf. It's pretty much wow. it's my new be here now. It's like my new Bible. It's like the the, the one of the greatest works of literature really? I could ever have. I'm on my my second or third pass through it. Um, really? And, and it, yeah, and there's like 70 chapters. They're all really short chapters. Kind of oh, like I'm gonna uh, buy it right now. Right now, I totally. I mean, I could not recommend it more. And so you know, you uh, you could do the audio book, and he reads it too, very yeah. meditative, slowly, and everything. But you can also like turn to any page, kind of thing, kind of like a yeah. be here now. Yeah like Ram Dass thing. Uh, yeah. and it's just the most unbelievable knowledge. And so everyone who has come on this podcast, I've asked this question to, um, oh, that's great. Yeah. So far, no one's read it, but I, I always say once you do, you feel free to come back on the podcast and we'll talk about it. Oh, right um, on, right on. I love yeah. that, man. No, it's, it's great. And I'll definitely, uh, take those links once you send me and, and try to make an, an attachment um, yeah. on this whenever it airs. Uh, well, and, and I, and yeah. 
Well, and I was just going to say to, and I, I so appreciate the idea that you, that you're, you kind of invite people to come back and discuss it because I think that, yeah. you know, I always joke that, I mean, there's a thousand books written about the music industry, but there's really no book written about the music industry. And what I mean about that is there's no kind of formula that guarantees success. You know, it's like a, a lot of them are theories and sometimes just like, listen, you just try it and you start to adapt to this and adopt almost like, you know, songwriting where you might take something from Dylan, something from, you know, Leonard Cohen, all that stuff. But it's something where with what we do as a creative pursuit, there's so much that's analogous to life. And there's so much that's analogous to how we grow, how we learn, how we leave ourselves open to opportunity, open yeah. to relationships. And that doesn't mean to every relationship because some are toxic. You know, yeah. and figuring out what you take, what you leave behind and understanding, like recognizing it faster, you know, like all of those things to me, that's why I, I like to keep myself read and, and, you know, informed, not just about what's happening currently, but even just those life lessons and philosophy of the creative, you know, the creative mind and the creative spirit, like you were saying, yeah. You know, one of the things that's incredible about, about Rick Rubin, I, I, I work with an artist that had him as a producer for Oh, months. wow. And, um, and have you, by the way, have you checked out his podcast with, um, with Malcolm Gladwell? I have. I love yeah, that because I'm also such one. a fan of Malcolm Gladwell. He's one of my Me, favorite authors in the who, world. I, I there's no yeah. book he's written that I haven't read. Oh, you know, and I'm sure you're aware of, uh, was it Miracle in Wonder, the Paul, Paul Simon one? He did Which this. One? Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book with Paul Simon where he basically just interviewed Paul Simon. It's an audio book. And, and he, inter he interviews him about every song. And and it's oh, just he and gosh. Paul Simon's conversations recording. It, it's so special. And I, I would I, love to check. That's the one well, that like for Malcolm Gladwell fans, that's the one that not everyone really knows about that I tried to shed light on other than outliers and blink and everything. Man, I would love to check that out because I find Paul Simon a really fascinating case study for like <laughs> like kind of an archetypal singer songwriter. Yeah. You know, someone yeah. who not not only like when you hear, you know, from the beginning of his career to later in his career, like from writing and to production, but the way that he filters stuff through his artistic vision mm -hmm. and his dedication to the craft of writing, you know, yeah. because, because some people, a lot of times when I work with singer songwriters, I like to ask them, what's your favorite part of the process? You know, because for some people it's the writing of the song and they don't even necessarily like, like they'll write, three songs a day and just keep moving like a shark, never stopping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other people, it's this, it's the edit or the second edit and all this stuff. Other people, they just mm -hmm. write songs in order to get up and perform. You know, uh -huh. other people, it's yeah. the recording process. So right. I'm always curious, you know, where people find that, that kind of, you know, um, therapeutic part of the process or yeah, no, what is it about question. that they're passionate about yeah that's a great question and and so uh do you do you have kind of a suspicion when it comes to paul simon um as oh. to as to where he might kind of land in that spectrum um, i i think that he my guess would be he he gets a lot of energy from the creative editing mm -hmm. from the the refining you know yeah. like yeah, that old right. that old saying, if I had more time, I would have written less. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, I think yeah. that I think that like it's so um, good. he'll sit in a room with musicians and he'll just be waving his hands around and being like, you know, almost conducting in his mind and going, I need this here. And like because he's hearing kind of it in its in its entirety. Yeah. Um so I think he probably I love that. I, I believe that his process is he writes a little bit or used to every day. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, it's funny, I was talking to Kenny Loggins about a song at one point, mm -hmm. and Kenny had a really interesting point, the song, This Is It. And, and he, he always has interesting stories about the genesis of his song. But one of the things that was interesting about This Is It is he was writing it, but it didn't really reveal itself to him until his father was sick in the hospital. Mm -hmm. and, and so he, would, he had been writing the song thinking he knew what it was about. And then he had a moment in his life that really brought it into crystal clear focus and he was able to finish the song. So yeah. he was like kind of sitting, percolating, but he didn't know. Right, it wasn't or, complete. Yeah. Right. Missing and so puzzle that piece. thing of recognizing and once again, taking that inspiration, finding that stuff, being able to kind of land the plane, I find that a fascinating part of the, the artist discovery process. And I think that Paul Simon, yeah. I, I think that he's probably similar 
to Kenny in that way. Like Kenny is such a yeah. creative spirit. I don't think that starting a song or just like writing something out, he, he likes to collaborate with people about stuff back and forth and like, and, and keep kind of, you know, ushering it to its finish line, you know? Yes. So it's, it's a right. lot of times it can be like almost like cookie where you're adding versus mm -hmm. kind of the subtracting. Uh -huh, and then you're uh -huh. kind of like, okay, now it's becoming this and then letting it become that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, there was a point in my life where uh, it was probably, I don't know which one, early on maybe when I was a teenager, but I've, I slowly realized that a lot of my songs ended up kind of being these really kind of cosmic fucking weird premonitions right. of something that would happen in the future. And only once they happen, it would, it would be like in retrospect, it has a whole new meaning, but also it's like, maybe that's why I did it. So a lot of the times I let go of a lot of intentionality when I'm in yes. the process of writing. Uh, yes. And I'm not one who's very precious about what I mean. <laughs> that, right, yeah, right, it, it. It's a It's a hard thing to say, and I know a lot of songwriters would shame me for saying that. Um, no, but no. You know, I, I have had to let go of a lot of like uh, my own interpretation, I guess. is 100%. I actually, I'm actually of the belief that you're in the right <laughs> and your songwriting friends would disagree with you in the wrong. Well, and the reason I say that is you think about how many, I mean, Susa Studio, Susa Studio was just a word that, that, that Phil Collins had put in until he found a better lyric. But it wound up working, right? That's because, great, the filler, yeah. Yeah, but I also mm -hmm. think that there's an element where where there's a mystery in music, and mm -hmm. we're all supposed to find ourselves in it, right? Yeah. There's supposed to be a universality where we find ourselves, to me, great writing, where we find ourselves in it. So yeah. if it's too much you telling me or showing me a, a, a slideshow, I can't put myself in it. Like if you're showing me, from your bass fishing trip, I can't put myself next to you. But if you can describe the feeling yeah. of catching a fish, I'm like, man, I want to do that. You know what I mean? So I can yes. put myself in the seat with you grabbing the fish. So I think there's a there's a lot of 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 um I think there's a lot to to the idea that you can release that intention intentionality yeah. and can go, you know what? Like even um uh is it O to Billy Joe? Um uh throwing something off the Tallahatchie bri bridge. And for years, people were like, what was, you know, Billy Joe throwing off of the Tallahatchie bridge? Uh -huh. You know, like, and, and we don't even know if the, if the artist really had an idea of what it was supposed to be. It, they were literally yeah. almost like telling a story from a narrator's perspective. Yeah. So now right. you put yourself in it and, and you're, Fine. now you're invested. You're like, what the hell was in that sack? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Allowing, allowing some space to, to superimpose our own experiences. And, yes. Um, and or you're so vain. Like, 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 you know, the idea that like no one knew what it was about. And I think Carly yeah. Simon, um auctioned off telling someone what, who was, who was about like for some, for some uh, benefit and oh make some crazy God. like six figure sum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now that yeah. is genius entrepreneurial <laughs> mindset she has there. Wow. Oh, yeah, one man. day, one day yes. I'll, I'll, I'll expose the meaning of all of my songs in the anthology right, exactly. album or right. like, yeah, you have to exactly. listen to them all at once and it'll become clear. Wouldn't that have been amazing if, if if Leonard Cohen just had a podcast at the end of his life where he explained oh. everything that he wrote? Oh yeah, well, and you know you know that like uh, Hallelujah, there's so many different versions of it. Yes, true. The, the right. one that's that, that's once again accepted is the is the Jeff Buckley version. Jeff Buckley, of but, course. But there was a period where where I believe Leonard Cohen asked people to stop recording Hallelujah. Oh wow! It's like please stop recording my song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I it's like. It. It's the most covered yeah. song in history. Oh, you know, um, I know, and, I know. But there's also there's also like you know so many yeah like you said different verses and so I was I was gonna say this earlier. Um, well, first of all, Jeff Buckley's one of my my all time God, highest. Totally. I care about him more than any other artist, and we have like opposite oh. voices and lives. But uh, he um, he took that song and made it this beautiful haunting experience that yes. we didn't know before. And yes. while I love, you know, Leonard Cohen's, you know, retro 80s gospel yeah. ballad shit, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's not what it, you know, it didn't hit like it hit with Jeff Buckley. And, and yeah. so that that's the power of a, a good cover, right? Um, or interpretation. But but what, what I wanted to say just about the songwriting process was that I don't know if you ever heard about that conversation I know there's many, but there was like one conversation where where Leonard Cohen and, and Bob Dylan sat down at a cafe and and exchanged different songwriting ideas. Whereas like, you know, Dylan was uh, explaining how he like you know he 
don't think twice. One of them, they all came yes. like before he was 20 years old on a whim, you know, just yes. like they, they all just popped out in a few minutes kind of thing. Whereas like, whereas Leonard Cohen, you know, what do you say? He spent uh, um, 80 verses later of hallelujah yes. and, and banging his head against the wall in, in his underwear at the hotel, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah, know, yeah. just very opposite, really far ends of this extreme spectrum of, of songwriting uh, and yeah. both, both two of the, you know, the greatest of all time. Well, and circling back, um, Malcolm Gladwell does a podcast about that specifically. Like they're they're oh. they, like them being almost like um, two different archetypes of the songwriting perspective. Yeah, you know what I mean, like Leonard Cohen oh, and Bob wow. Dylan. I didn't know that. Really, I need. I'm gonna look for this. Yeah, I think it's in Revisionist History. I think that's where. I think that's where he has it. I might be wrong, but um, but to me, it's fascinating because because once again, there's no one way you know to do it, and I think. Going back to what you were talking about before about how you have looked at being conscious or subconscious in your writing process, mm -hmm. I think that that going back to this being analogous to life, I think that that's one of the important things is finding out what your workflow is yeah. and what you're trying to express. So when we talk about craft, and let's say once again, you know, monetization or art pressurized by time or craft mm -hmm. or all these things that like some people feel is is antithetic to or antithetical to the creative process. And I, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like yeah. I, it's yeah. it's a necessary evil, you know, but part of what we're talking about now is there's like, I just did this thing for Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy. And Smokey was talking about when he yeah. first met Barry Gordy because Barry was a mentor to him. And Barry said, I love your your writing, but you know you have to have a point. And, he, and mm. Smokey would, like, had a great way with words, but like, he didn't recognize why things had to go straight to the chorus or yeah. what it means if you have an odd uh, number of bars for phrase or being stable or unstable. These things that are like right. going back to, to emotion, these mm -hmm. things are in our tool belt for creating kind of emotional stability or resonance with people that like, like sometimes we do them naturally, but like having a sense of, you know, I want to add two beats here and just hold people for a second before I let them off into the chorus. Like to me, those craft things, are what take it from being, as you said, a self process to an other process to being like, okay, how are people going to be able to, you know, to, um, or, I mean, even when you think about cooking and you're like, you know, there's a way that great chefs present food because they know how you're going to eat it and they yeah. want each bite to have a certain thing. It's the same ingredients. It's their vision, but they, they understand what the mouthfeel and experience of the, of the, um, consumer is going to be, you yeah. know what I mean? So not consumerism, but just that idea of like, like, uh -huh. um, even for me, you know, like, let's say I'm cutting a solo here at, in the, in the, in the studio, I have a sensibility of like, what should probably happen on bar three into bar, bar four into bar five and bar yeah. eight into bar one. You know, like I have a sense of there should probably be a certain arc if I want to take somebody on a certain trip. I know what mm -hmm. using chops and technique and speed is going to do or using delay. Like, I know that yeah. it's going to elicit a certain emotional response and I'm trying to I'm trying to bring you into to this narrative and either play into your expectation or do something and juxtapose your expectation. I do something that's a complete surprise. You know, like once again, like let's say the bridge and now we're into a key change, which you know, first of all, when was the last time you heard a bridge? But <laughs> you know with that idea of of there yeah. is there like I think sometimes young musicians they feel as though it, it kind of falls in that category of, I don't want to learn how to read music because I don't want it to destroy my art. Yeah, right. And I'm kind of like, how is that going to destroy your art? Like, yeah, like it's, totally. a, it's, it's an additive element of it. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you've encountered people that you thought were too left brain in their approach, but mm -hmm. having a sense of ownership and, and um, providence over your art, I think is really important. Like knowing yes. how to get back there, leaving breadcrumbs for yourself, even if it's, even if it's just like your unique voice, but leaving breadcrumbs of like, oh, I guess I, you know, side chain the bass to the, you know, to the <laughs> kick drum yeah. here, or like I, I use, I use a hi-hat as a gate. Those things are like, okay, there are ways that lead you back to where you wanted to, to, to go for production. Yes. And, and I mean, I personally do utilize, and I nerd out very hard on all of those things. 100%. And I mean, if, if you could see, you know, my sessions of 270 tracks and stuff like that, yeah. no one will ever know what goes and goes into the process, right? Yes. No one will yeah. ever understand what's behind the scenes. And, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm just making the meal. 
I do yes. think there's power in stripping down so we can witness yep. the elements together. Um, yep. And and for example, I'm actually doing this like uh, interesting, strange uh, synesthesia performance where this woman is cooking in every course that she prepares. I'm going to be playing music um, to how to how she prepares these meals, right? And this oh, is next really? week. Really? Yeah, and it's this fancy kind of high end thing. Uh, but what we did, she she tries to impart synesthesia on people, right? Yes. And so so we did this test together, and it's not that I've I personally uh, have this, but what she did was she we we would pair different experiences and, and flavors mm -hmm. together so we like did a meditation on this tangerine and wow. then and then she would tell me these characters of like now this walnut with this tangerine is like this father figure with this like young girl and then you like meditate on that and then it's like then it's like this feta cheese with this tangerine and this is wow. like kind of the sassy ant and it really worked for me you know i've never had like i never see the colors and all that stuff but yeah i felt the pairing and so what i what i realized was and personally most of my success even though i get really deep into edm and and being yeah. a music producer and stuff and all these instruments most of my success in my career has come from really stripped down simple performances yes and so, yeah and i think a big part of that is so so like we all love to see what's behind the curtain you know we could spend eons building this yes, amazing yes. soup and stuff but the moment we're just like oh here's the acoustic guitar the simple strum oh, yeah. and here's the voice and we see that pairing together it it hits on a whole new level uh 100 yeah we want to be a part of the process i think is the well no, i'm with that. you and, and i think to your point which is i mean like <laughs> <laughs> there's sorry you just reminded me of an old joke which is which is um uh intelligence is knowing that tomato is a fruit wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad yeah. <laughs> and then and the the addendum to that is genius is knowing how to put it in a fruit salad oh yeah you okay know? yeah right right exactly and for, yeah and for me that's part of like what you're saying like when you think of like a michelin star meal or something like that one of the things is you you actually want to taste the flavors. You want to, you like, you hear it together, but you also have a sense of, oh, wow, they put, I can taste back there that there's a little bit of cardamom, like that kind mm -hmm. of thing where it's like all your things get awakened because, yeah. you know, it's been put together in such a beautiful way. Same thing with the symphony where yes. it's like, you can hear it as one big block of sound, but you also have an appreciation of like, oh, wow, he doubled the woodwinds and the brass. So it mm. actually softens the brass. Like there's ways that like suddenly yeah. you start to kind of sense how the stuff comes out. Yeah, and I think right. what I find fascinating about the synesthesia thing is, A, I have a friend who actually has a record called Synesthesia because he has a, a pretty heavy, um, uh, it is a big part of his music. Like yeah. he literally uh, for years didn't read music. He just he just associated stuff to colors, right? Mm. Um, but um, I also want to turn you on to my friend Joel Shear, who does some of these, um, he does like these kind of meditative kind of sound bath um, performances on yeah. electric guitar. Do Amazing I know guitar Joel player. Shear? I might I mean, he used to him. play a lot with a lot of more sad. He plays with um uh uh the magnetic zeros. Oh um Edward Sharp and the uh and the Mag he used to play. Oh family. yeah, magnetic. I love Edward Sharp. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. I mean, incredible musician. Super great guy. Great studio guy. All that stuff. Um, but I find that like you're saying, there's something about, you know, like sometimes it is. It's just two notes. It's just voice and guitar or it's like or for me it might even be you know like um ways that you process the guitar like ways that you shine lights on stuff like for that but going back making the emotional content kind of the boss making that what you're aiming towards and then everything else is tools mm -hmm. in the tool belt it mm -hmm. could be yep. once again you know it could be you know gating with this and side chaining that and yeah you know yep. compressing this and bus compressing that and yada yep. yada yada and you know yep. multiple bus compressors or it could be you know leaving it just as as one stereo microphone in a room because mm -hmm. there's an intimacy for the fact that like you know that only happened one time on the planet ever and you captured it you know mm -hmm. what i mean there could be something mm -hmm. about the intimacy of that moment that you want and those are two tools in your tool belt to create the emotion the emotion could be emotional intimacy the emotion could be i want people you know dancing you know with with lights and a phone coming from the ceiling 
Did yeah. I just tell my age? Did I just age myself by saying that? I, I feel like I did. I feel you like know, I actually saw Sufjan Stevens do exactly that at one performance. Oh, really? Yeah, really? and balloons, they all like at the end, they all drop down from the ceiling. Okay. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's great. That's great. And um, yeah, nice. And and you know, it's it's funny because the the Rick Rubin book, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, he does cover, but he also has a way of speaking that it almost like gives permission to yeah, either it. way it's like he's like and a lot of the time in the book like because he's worked with everybody you're like he never yeah. mentions by name and, and you're yes. all like you're guessing who is what yeah, and how it's like imagine, yeah. this person mumbles when they write and then like you just don't know and it's kind of this fun <laughs> puzzle but uh he he basically is like there's this way and then there's also this way and both mm-hmm. work and and it's this permission that like whichever yeah. path we take it's okay yeah and try some on, like, like you know, yeah. sometimes it's a good experiment just to be like, like, like what you were doing, you know, um, where it's just like, I'm just going to set up some cameras, I'm just going to write and create and like layer. Or mm-hmm. it could be, you know, like Michael Stipe has a thing where I think he's, he used to have a typewriter and a tape recorder in like yeah. a little section of his house where it's like, that's where I go to write. Yeah. And he wanted to write on typewriter because it's linear. You can see the work you did, see the process, and then like kind of sing an idea. So like, that's how he would create these things and i'm like mm-hmm. whatever works for you to feel creative fulfilled yes. to feel um really like to me mossy and, cre- and being creative and not mm-hmm. feel like you have to like slug up a hill and like set up you know a <laughs> you know a windmill and power generator it's like you know like you want to be able to once again sit down feel inspired and like jump into it and yeah. and, and the other thing for me and i know we're, we're starting to run out of time but mm-hmm. the thing that i think you know if i can leave people listening with anything is is that idea of holding off on the judgment process mm. not letting that subjunctive self get in the way of the creative self mm-hmm. and so that's why for me that thing of four ideas every morning is important because it's without judgment like don't because a lot of people do that like you start doing something you go, oh that sucks oh that sucks before you even finish the idea it's like listen just play it out it, it might mm-hmm. suck listen i suck every day it might mm-hmm. suck but also it's like sometimes you can't get to the good idea until you get that bad idea out of the way. Yeah. Sometimes you might surprise yourself at what it turns into. So just get it out, you know, and just keep rolling and let that stuff like just be that conduit of, of, of creative energy, you know? Yes. And I, I, man, that, yeah. that's the, that's the, the, the perfect conclusion. Couldn't have said it better myself. I could keep talking for hours with you, man. man yeah. Uh, just, just always, always a pleasure, Tariq. And I realized, I think I, it, it just occurred to me during the zoom and how I think we've only ever met each other on zoom. Uh, and You're like, right. ha- have we ever like seen each other in person before? I We've had so many so. I, Zoom I, calls. I, you know, it's funny because I, I want to, I wanted to say yes because I've seen you perform on, on like YouTube and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I don't think we've ever been in the same room. I think I, I may, might have seen you one time riding your skateboard down State Street. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I think I think that was the, the only time I actually saw it. But we never, we didn't even get a chance to say that hi or check hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I hope so someday soon. And one hundred percent, man. I'll definitely keep you posted um, with everything. And, and and please stay in touch. It's it's such a pleasure talking to you, Tarek. Dude, the pleasure is mine. And if we do do this this Salt Lake uh, songwriting camp in oh, yeah. New York. I will let you know because it would be great to see you and like please. and Roger would probably be there and oh uh, that would be great to, so see, guys, yeah. to see him and also uh, please send me those those links to the books that you're mentioning one hundred percent I'll find them right now I'll send them over to you all right but thanks again all right partner take care have a good one.